Take out your bulletin and look, look at the front of your bulletin. And what do you read right under Redeemer Presbyterian Church? Yeah, and if you look at the attendance pad there in the pew, it says the same thing. That phrase has been our quote-unquote tagline since the church began 20 years ago. From the beginning, we have always wanted everyone who is part of Redeemer to experience community. The question becomes, for us, what is real community? What should community be? And if we have real, a real community here at Redeemer, what is it that each of us will experience? See, community has many different facets. Some of them are positive. I laugh with you. When you laugh, you do the same for me. We do it for each other. That's community. You care for me. When I have a need, I care for you. When you have a need, we do that for each other. That's community. And those are the facets of community that we cherish. Those are the feel-good parts of community. But Jesus has a bigger vision of community for us. And Jesus' bigger vision might not feel as good or comfortable as those things I just mentioned. Because in Jesus' bigger vision of community, we are required to speak God's truth into each other's lives. Community, real community, is being brave enough not to settle for our culture's mantra, live and let live. Real community is realizing how much we need to know and how well we know, need to know the truth of God's word so that we can speak it very well into each other's lives. You could call this the uncomfortable part of community. It's difficult. It makes us afraid because you might tell me to butt out or mind your own business. Anybody here remember the Christian group Glad from the 70s and 80s? <laughs> I had one of their albums. The lyrics to one of their songs are, are these. The only lasting love begins with honesty. But don't become discouraged when we disagree. Lies are so appealing when you want to be my friend. But all you'll do is hurt me in the end. The facet of community, this facet, is definitely not comfortable. But it's just as necessary as the comfortable feel-good parts, or you and I are really not community at all. We really don't love each other well if we are not brave enough to speak the truth to each other. So, I'm just saying, buckle up. <laughs> this might be a rough ride this morning, but it's God's truth so we can handle it, right? You and I have got to speak the truth in love. So, toward that end, if you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, the seventh chapter. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 812. And when you found Matthew 7, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, 
Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, know how, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. It is the truth, the only truth in this world. All truth belongs to you. So we thank you that you speak it to us. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your Holy Spirit so that we might understand your truth, even the difficult things, and that through your Spirit we are strengthened in our inner being to live by your truth and to be the people that your truth calls us to be. That's what we want this morning, Lord, as we come to your word. So we ask that you would grant us that request because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We need to see how this passage that we've read fits into the flow of the entire Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts before his audience, his followers, the right way of living in the world. There is a right way to live in this world, and Jesus puts it before us. And right living involves right relationships. And relationships are always challenging. We could identify five relationships in the sermon so far. First, Jesus addresses the right relationship with self. At the very beginning of the sermon, back in chapter 5, Jesus puts before his followers, he puts before you and me, in the Beatitudes, the kind of people that we ought to be. We ought to be poor in spirit. We ought to mourn over sin. We ought to be meek. We ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We ought to be merciful. We ought to be pure in heart. We ought to be peacemakers. We ought to be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We ought to be salt and light in this world so that people can see our good deeds and give glory the Father in heaven. All this, all this is the right way for us to be in this world. Secondly, Jesus moves into teaching his listeners about a right relationship with God's law, how to be truly righteous. And Jesus tells his followers, regardless of what they might have heard, you don't relate to the law 
by addressing the letter of it. You relate to the law of God from your heart. And so anger, lust, retaliation, relationship with enemies, all those things that Jesus mentions in chapter, this chapter, they're not just action issues, but they're also heart issues. So we relate rightly to the word of God when we obey it from the heart. Thirdly, in chapter 6, Jesus describes the right relationship to what we do. He describes a better way, a right way for us to give. A right way, a better way for us to pray. A right way, a better way for us to fast. Fourthly, Jesus describes the relationship that you and I are to have toward the things of this world. And the right way for us to relate to the stuff of this world is to understand that it is not the best treasure. The best treasure, the best reward, is one that God has waiting for you and for me in heaven. And since that is true, Jesus tells us a better way, the right way to relate to the things of earth like food and clothing and so forth, is not to worry about them. Do not be anxious, Jesus tells us. The right way to be in this world is to be people who first and foremost fix our eyes on the kingdom of God and advancing it and the righteousness of God and being that in our lives. And then we trust God to take care of everything else we need. In the passage this morning, we come to a a fifth relationship. And Jesus describes here the right way for us to be in community. The right way for us to relate to one another. And before we look at this relationship, I feel compelled to repeat a reality that I often repeat because we can never forget it. And this is our reality in this world. Whatever God ordains, Satan... Yeah, I'm glad you remember. (laughs) Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. That's our reality. And what God ordains is beautiful community among his people, a healthy body, a loving family, life together. After God created the world and everything in it, and after he pronounced over everything, it is good, the first thing that God declared to be not good is loneliness. It is not good for man to be alone. And I have to believe that if God had created woman first, he would have said, it is not good for a woman to be alone. Maybe not. The women seem to have it going on. Y'all know that's true around here, don't you? Uh, But I think God would have said it even to women because you know what? God himself lives in community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so he's designed community for us because God loves us because God knows we need community then Satan will tear at the fabric of it and all we have to do is look around us to see that's exactly what has happened in our culture in regards to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7 really the only verses we're going to get to this morning Jesus says in those verses judge not that you be not judged. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The enemy has commandeered these verses. He's actually used them to distort and to destroy community the way it could be, and community the way it should be. The enemy has refashioned these verses into a muzzle, a muzzle to silence the truth of God coming from the lips of the people of God, because the enemy knows that God's truth is beautiful. God's truth is life-transforming when it's joined with the Spirit of God. Satan doesn't want that beauty for your life. He doesn't want that transformation for your life or mine. And unless we take the muzzle off, we will not be in right relationship with one another. We will not be in true community. We will not be for one another who we need to be for one another. And if we allow the muzzle to remain on and the distortion to continue, the consequences will be even greater. For those who do not yet know the Lord, we will silently watch them march off to their eternal destruction. There are few verses in all of Scripture that have been more misunderstood and more twisted and more used to support the opposite of what they truly mean than these verses. People who may not know anything else in the Bible, they know this verse, don't they? Judge not, that you be not judged. The world uses these verses as a bludgeon to beat up Christians. What they say, what they say, these verses mean is that everyone can do what is right in their own eyes and that Jesus here forbids anyone to make a judgment about it. Our culture is swinging that bludgeon more fiercely and furiously now than ever before. They say the only way to have community, the only right way to live with one another is for everyone to do what they feel is right for them and for no one else to ever challenge them about it. They purport that here in these verses, Jesus is promoting a standardless society. No right, no wrong. People inside the church misunderstand these verses as well because our culture seeps into our community here. We too think we must remain silent. We think these verses mean that we're not to interfere with one another or to speak into the way other people around us live our lives. Do what you want to do. I got nothing to say about it. Spend your time how you want to spend your time. Got nothing to say about it. Spend your money how you want to spend your money. Got nothing to say about it. Treat your spouse however you want to treat your spouse. Got nothing to say about it. Raise your children. That's up to you. Do what you want. I got nothing to say about it. So we too think these verses mean live and let live. And so you and I are silent, but we are wrong. See, the controversy with these verses, the point at which the enemy does his greatest twisting and contorting, is with the word judge or 
the word judgment. See, we tend to define that word very narrowly, and we make judge a synonym for condemn. We think they're one and the same. Judge and condemn are equal. If someone says, don't judge me, what they mean is don't condemn me for what I'm doing. Certainly, condemnation is a judgment that can be passed on a person. If a person is judged and found guilty, that person is condemned. But the word judge, as used in Jesus' day, had a much broader meaning than that. The word means to evaluate, to discern, to separate, to decide. See, a judge on a bench doesn't always condemn. Sometimes a judge acquits, but only after all the evidence and testimony is evaluated. Only after the truth is separated from the lies. Only after what the judge discerns the truth is or the evidence supports does a judge render a decision. That judgment might be to condemn. That judgment might be to acquit, to restore. And so because of the broad meaning of this term, one commentator has translated this verse, do not judge unfairly. Evaluate, discern, then judge. Jesus is not saying here that we are not to judge any action at all. If Jesus were saying that, it would be contrary to what Jesus has already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn back to chapter 5. Look in verse 20. Jesus told this very same audience, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here calls his audience to make a judgment. It requires his followers to look at the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees and what the scribes and Pharisees call righteousness. And whatever his followers discern or determine the Pharisees' righteousness to be, true righteousness exceeds that. And so this judgment must be made. Mr. Pharisee, your righteousness is not the right kind of righteousness. I judge because Jesus said so. That the right kind of righteousness, the kind of righteousness that gets you to heaven, is a righteousness that you do not have. This is a judgment based on the truth that Jesus speaks. Likewise, look in verse 6 of chapter 7 that we read this morning. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Without completely unpacking this verse, which is very odd. We don't have time to do it this morning. At the very least, it tells us that a judgment about people must be made. You have to discern, determine, judge who is a dog? And we've determined who a dog is. Don't give them what is holy. You've got to determine who a pig is. And when you've made that judgment or determination, don't cast your pearls before them. A judgment must be made. Keep looking. Down in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Another judgment must be made. Who is a sheep? And who is a wolf, only dressed in sheep's clothes? See, Jesus is not telling us not to see 
or identify pigness or dogness or sheepness or wolfness. He expects that we'll discern these things in people and act accordingly. You can turn over to Matthew 18. Jesus says there, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Then he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is calling for a judgment to be made, for something to either be bound or to be loosed. You judge together, and whatever you judge will be done in heaven. Is that not amazing? thing for Jesus to say. We have to know that Jesus in these verses is not forbidding us to make judgments about what people do or who they are. The verse is not a divine muzzle that prevents us from saying that behavior is wrong. It's sinful. Or that behavior is good. It's in accordance with the word of God. One commentator writes this, for our judgment is itself a factor in shaping their lives. And a harsh judgment may help a fellow creature on the road to perdition. See, our judgments that are made in accordance with God's word have the potential to actually help someone else, to help them order their life rightly. The apostles had to make judgments. The apostle John writes in his second letter, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That's a judgment, isn't it? In our culture, we kind of cringe a little bit. You can't say that about someone else. John does. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That's a judgment. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's a judgment. And don't forget this. The apostle Paul is the apostle of love. He loved everybody, right? When he was an old man, over 90 years old, too frail to walk to church on his own, they carried him to church. And as they carried him along the way, the Apostle John would call out to those little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. John loved deeply. And it's because John loved deeply that he calls on people to make judgments, to evaluate what it means to abide in Christ and then abide in Him. Listen, it does not make you more loving not to judge with the truth of God's word. You're not more loving if you keep your mouth shut. In fact, since Jesus is telling us the truth here, it makes you love someone less if you keep the muzzle on to not allow the word of God to speak into and judge their life. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. A judgment has to be made. What is the true gospel? And if someone is preaching something other than the true gospel, it's the anti-gospel. Don't believe it. Now, having said all, are you, are you guys okay? <laughs> Did I tell you to buckle up? I tell you it's going to be rough. Having said that, let me also be clear on this. Judgment is not condemnation. Now that's where the challenge comes for you and me, isn't it? We think judgment and condemnation are synonymous. And we let ourselves off the hook, but we condemn others for the very things that we do. R.T. France, in his commentary, says that this text deals with the down-to-earth issues of unfairly critical attitudes to others, which combined with a naive lack of self-criticism threaten to disrupt a close-knit community such as that of Jesus' first disciples. See, we might make judgments on what we see in the lives of people who are very complex, but we do not condemn them for whatever we see, that right belongs to God and God alone. And here's an example of that from Scripture. It's in Luke chapter 9. And it's time for Jesus to go to the cross. And so he's making his way to Jerusalem. He's passing through the land of the Samaritans. And he sends messengers ahead of him to make preparations for him in that village. But Scripture says the people did not receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. See, James and John were not very self-aware. If they wanted to condemn and destroy other people who sin only differently, than these two sin. See, James and John could make a judgment about the behaviors of the Samaritans. They could judge it is always wrong not to receive Jesus. There's no one like him, no one more kind or loving or gracious or, or welcoming. There is no reason to reject him, and you do wrong to do so. That's a judgment. It was not, however, James and John's right to condemn the people, to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. And that's why Jesus rebukes them here. That's not your job to condemn. That right belongs to God and God alone who knows the hearts of these Samaritans. He knows why they didn't receive him in the first place. He knows that in the future, perhaps when the gospel comes and is preached to them, they might respond and come to faith in Christ. So James and John can judge, and they can judge rightly, but Jesus will not allow them to condemn. And that's true for us as well. Everyone in your life is a complex person. We don't know why they do the things that they do. We are allowed to say, as we observe their life, that's not right. We can say that's wrong based on what Scripture teaches us, but you can never say you are condemned. 
the community that Jesus has for us to experience is according to Scott McKnight, for reconciliation instead of damnation. The community for us to experience is for reconciliation instead of damnation. We need each other. And if we love each other, truly, we'll take the muzzle off. Only then will we experience true community. A community that looks like reconciliation with God and with each other. A community that's at peace because we speak the truth. And so we're not seething right underneath the surface. James 5, 19. My brothers, if anyone among you, body of Christ, wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need each other, don't we? Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need each other. Proverbs 27.17 As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I don't have time to, to list off all the other one another passages in the New Testament that speak to the responsibility that you and I have to one another in community. I just read these verses to demonstrate that if we believe that Jesus is telling us to butt out of one another's business, or if we believe that Jesus is condoning here an attitude of live and let live, and we are absolutely wrong, and we will never experience community as we could have it. We'll never experience community as we should have it. The right way. To relate to one another. To have a healthy body. A loving family. A way to experience real community is to speak God's truth into each other's lives. If you do not speak truth into my life, I will be duller than I already am. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Believe me. We sharpen each other. I need you to sharpen me. If we really love each other, we'll speak truth, God's truth, into each other's lives. We won't watch silently as people continue to live in sin. Or, or listen, even live in their blind spots. You know, we all have them. That's why they're called blind spots. We, we can't see them. And we're living out of our blind spots. And we need someone to tell us, to open our eyes. So we will, as the Apostle Paul exhorts, we must speak the truth in love. Now I'm, almost, I'm done almost. And I don't have time to qualify Jesus' teaching here. And that makes me a little nervous that I've put a gun in your hand. Now go speak the truth. That's not the point. Maybe I'll get to more of that next week. But if we look in verse 12, this is a parameter enough that's set on Jesus' teaching here. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
And then there's one other parameter that will keep our truth speaking in check and keep us from being a danger to ourselves or to others. And that is we must speak in love. And I just know this is true. I know this to be true. If love and not the desire to inflict pain and not the desire to get even and not the desire to put someone in their place, but if love is always and only the reason that makes us brave enough to take the muzzle off, then it will be well. Love. Speak the truth in love. See, Satan doesn't want us to help each other. He doesn't want us to have real community. He wants us to remain silent. He wants us to believe the way he's twisted Jesus' words. He wants us to be self-protecting. He wants us to be self-serving, to remain comfortably disengaged from community by saying, well, I'm not comfortable with someone else evaluating my life, so I won't evaluate anyone else's life. And then we can just be one big, happy family. Can we? Is that true? Will we be happy or will we just be subterranean? Will we really accomplish anything of any significance for the kingdom of God if we can't lovingly speak the truth to one another? But more importantly, is that the best that Jesus has for us? Is that the vision he has for community as it could be, as it should be? The answer is no, because he loves us so much. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are indwelled by the Spirit of the living God whom Jesus promised us will guide us into all truth, we can love each other enough to speak the truth to one another. That's community as it could be. That's community as it should be. A community founded on Christ. A community founded on His truth. Sharing Christ in common in this life and encouraging each other with His truth while we wait, make our way to the next one. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You that You love us enough to speak truth to us. Lord, we pray that You would give us the courage to speak truth to one another. Lord, that means we have to know Your truth and know it well, and so make us students of Your Word. It means, Father, that we have to examine our own hearts and our own lives before we dare speak into the life of someone else. Before we dare pass judgment on someone else for doing the very things that we do and, and letting ourselves off the hook. Lord, it means we have to be loving. Love has to be our motivation for all we do because I love others. I want the best for them. And the best for every person in this room, Lord, is your truth. There's nothing better for our lives. Nothing will make us happier or more content or more fulfilled than living our lives by your truth. Lord, it's your truth that brings stability and harmony to families, to marriages, to child raising. It's your truth that brings stability and unity and harmony to every interpersonal relationship, whether it's in school or the office or the warehouse or wherever it is. Lord, we must have your truth. We must speak your truth. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to do that. Because we love each other so much, we want the best for them. Do this in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.